0: Revelation chapter 16, Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 through 16. Now, I'm going to just give you a little heads up now. We're going to be actually, I'm going to read to you these verses that we're going to be covering tonight. But we won't start in this section, even though we've touched on it a little bit last week. There are a few more things from previous sections that I really feel like God wants us to dig into. before we finish up with this section in Revelation 16, But I'm going to read it to you. In verses 10 through 16 it says the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who will go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty." Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, like I said earlier, we're going to pick up in this section. But before we do, I want to go back and have you go back with me to Revelation chapter 11 and Revelation chapter um, 16. In Revelation 11, verse 17, and then Revelation 16, verse 5, there's a couple of things I want to bring out tonight from previous passages we've looked at. Because as always, there's always going to be stuff that are like, oh, I want to talk about that. Oh, I want to talk about that. And God will always say, I'll tell you when, I'll tell you when. And He then said, go back now. Revelation 11, look at verse 17. And it said this, it says, Sorry, verse 19. I'm saying 17. It's verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. So we see in the midst of this, the angels proclaiming uh, that that God um, has got the, that he's begun to reign. They're showing that the Ark of the Covenant is in the temple. Now, keep that in your mind because we're going to close with this tonight. Go to Revelation uh, chapter 16, no sorry, it's 15, verse 5. I'm going to come back to 16 in just a second. Revelation 15, look at verse 5, it says, After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests, And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So interestingly enough, in this recording of John under the leadership of the Spirit, of the things that he saw, things that are going to take place, he sees... The sanctuary, the temple opened, this is the temple of God where he actually dwells, and he sees it opened and he sees the Ark of the Covenant. And then a little later on he sees again the angels come out of the temple of God and it's filled with smoke. And so I'm just going to show that to you to put this little question mark in, in your mind and we'll deal with it at the close of our study tonight. Why does God just open John's view to see inside the temple and to see the Ark and then also have this smoke in there so nobody could even get anywhere near God at that time. Keep that in mind. Now go back with me to Revelation 11 and look at verse 17 and then 16, verse 5. Because there's something that I was teach while I was teaching Wednesday of last week, that God showed me while I was teaching that I didn't share with you all on Tuesday night. And I just couldn't wait to come back and show it to you. That's the kind of fun thing for me is, is while I'm studying, I see stuff. But sometimes while I'm reading, stuff will just jump out and something jumped out at me from these two passages that I hadn't seen when I was teaching it to you on Tuesday night. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 17, look at what it says, and it says, uh, well, start in verse 16, "...the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was." By the way, does anybody know what's missing? is to come. Now, some of you will have a Bible that has is to come. Actually, as you'll, if we, and I'm going to have to do this as fast as I can because of how much we've got to get into tonight, there actually are two main sets of manuscripts, two piles if you will. Let me just put it to you this way. When I talk about the manuscripts, I'm talking about the handwritten copies of the original texts. We don't have the passages that were written by Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. They have been lost over time. But as you know, the scriptures were hand copied meticulously. The the writings of Paul, we don't have, but we have hand copies. And there are thousands of hand copies. Actually, there's more documented evidence of the reality of the scriptures than there are for any other book in the world by a long shot. If you took all of those manuscripts and examined them closely, you'll find out that they come into two piles. This pile here is all the same. This pile here is all the same, but there are some slight, very, very subtle differences between this one and this one. Now, let's just say that this is the original manuscripts. Okay, That's the ones that were actually written. Then you have the pile that is closer to the originals. You understand what I'm saying? In, in the date of their being copied, this pile is closer to that. And then we have another pile which is closer to our time. Do you understand what I'm saying? The difference between this pile and this pile is that this pile actually has a few words that are added. Listen closely. In all of those places, and I could spend time blowing your mind with how I could tell you all the places they are, but there's no need for me to do that. But I can promise you this much, it never changes a meaning of anything. All it does is just clarify some things, and unfortunately, in my estimation, I think some of the things were added. Have you ever heard people that were King James only say, those other translations leave out passages or leave out words? Well, that's because the King James Bible was translated from this pile, which has those words. The pile of manuscripts like your ESV and NIV and others that they translate from is the one that's closer to the original. And in my study I think that the pile that's closer probably is more accurate because it's closer to the original documents. For example, I remember one day that I was doing a study and uh, well, let me just tell you how I got there. Back when I was in seminary and having to learn the Hebrew and the Greek, I'm not a real good scholar. Lord bless me with an incredible memory, but I'm not a good student. And to, to actually take the time to actually uh, study how to break down the parse the verbs and all this kind of stuff was way more work than I wanted to put into. So I found that the best way for me to learn how to get my homework done and pass my tests in the Greek and the Hebrew was. I would just memorize passive portions of the Bible. Instead, it was easier for me to do that. And so when the uh, Hebrew test was going to be somewhere between Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus chapter 28, I would just go memorize chapter 20 through 28 in my Bible. And back then, I only had the King James Version. Or if I was studying Greek and the professor said your final is going to be on Matthew chapter 2, somewhere between Matthew chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 22, I would memorize Matthew chapter two through Matthew twenty through twenty-two, and because I, I I could read a few words in the Hebrew and the Greek, but I didn't know them all. And so what I would do was memorize those passages, and then when it was time to take the test, we'd have the manuscript in front of us that was written in either Hebrew or Greek, and I would look for words that I recognized, and I'd say, oh, I know that word, oh, I know that word, and by figuring out what the words were here and there, I would then go, oh, I know what passage this is. And then on my manuscript in pencil, I would start writing all the words from my memory, starting maybe working backwards even, and I would write the passage. And then I would just, once I had that all done, I would write the whole thing out on my test booklet and hand it in like I had translated the whole thing. (laughs) But that's when I started to realize, wait a minute, there are more words in my memory than there are here on the paper. For example, and sometimes in the, in the Gospels you would say, in the actual manuscript it would say, as Jesus walked along, where the King James would have the seashore. Do you see? It says he walked along the seashore. It didn't change the meaning. It brought a little more clarity. But the seashore wasn't in the original manuscripts or the earlier manuscripts. Do you understand what I'm saying? And as you look at this passage here, look closely. I think the words, who is to come, that, that, that Bible translated from this pile, I think they were added because if you look at the context, look at what it says again. Verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. He's already coming. And we're going to deal with this in a lot more detail tonight. I'm going to show you that the coming of Jesus to reign does not begin when he steps foot on the earth. For example, if Thomas is sitting in my chair, all right? If, that's my chair, but Thomas has now taken it over. I, and I begin to remove him from my chair. I don't begin to reign once I finally sit down in my chair. In the removing of Thomas from my chair... I begin to reign. You understand? I'm beginning to exercise my authority. And as I want you to see, we've always thought that Jesus begins to reign and his reigning begins when he sets up his kingdom on the earth. The scripture shows us that he begins to reign in the final passage here, in the final section of the tribulation period. Look at what it says. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Do you see it? Go with me to Revelation chapter 16. Look at verse 5. I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, what's missing, and is to come. For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And because of the fact that this is going on at the end, Jesus' reigning begins as he sends these final judgments, these final bold judgments. Who's the one opening the seals? Jesus. Who's the one sending out the angels to blow the trumpets and the angels to pour the bowls of wrath? God is, Jesus. and So his reigning begins at this point. Even though Satan is still there thinking he's got authority, what did Jesus say before he ascended? All authority in heaven and earth has been what? given to me. He actually began to reign at the cross, folks. He defeated Satan at the cross and began to reign then. But we see in Hebrews chapter 2 that even though everything was subjected to Jesus and given he was given all authority, we did not yet see everything subjected to him and under his power. But he's ruling and reigning now. But there will be a point where it becomes really, really evident on the earth. And at the end of the tribulation period, the angels and everybody start to sing praises to him in heaven. And they no longer call him the one who was and is and is to come because he's beginning his coming back at that time. Isn't that cool? I had never seen that until I was reading it Wednesday night. And as I read it, I'm like, wait a minute, where's the, oh. And I started to see some stuff. Let me show you something else. Look at verse 18 of Revelation chapter 11. When is this? I don't think it matters which bowl at all. I think at this point it's tied more to the seventh trumpet. So uh, um, Revelation chapter 11, verse 18. The nations raged. But your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Look at the nation's attitude here. What's their, what's their reaction? They're enraged. By the way, that's not the reaction they had earlier in the tribulation period. Go with me back to Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. In Revelation chapter six verse fifteen says, that then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, and everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand. So earlier in the tribulation period, when the, the seals are being opened, and God's beginning to send some judgments on the earth to get their attention for repentance. They say to the rocks and the mountains, hide us. Keep that in mind, because that's going to be very, very important later on in our study. They call to the mountains, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. But now when God brings his final judgments on the earth, their nations are angry. When I read the nations were enraged, it reminded me of Psalm chapter 2. Go, to me, go with me to Psalm chapter 2. <clears throat> Verses 1 through 12. Psalm chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 12. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. At the beginning of this psalm, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples take their stand against who? The anointed one. Actually, this here is a picture of the, what's going to happen in the Battle of Armageddon. We see it in Revelation chapter 11, verse 18 again. It is that, that when Jesus begins to reign at this time and the blowing of the seventh trumpet and the seven bowls of God's wrath, the nation's reaction is they raged, just like Psalm 2 said they were going to. And I want you to hear something. They're going to be gathering, as we saw at the end of last week's study, and we're going to get into that in a little bit more tonight. They're going to be gathering in the Valley of Armageddon for what we call as the battle of Armageddon, or the great day of the Lord Almighty. And we have probably, for a time, thought that they were really coming against Israel. But they're coming against Jesus. Do you remember? Who was the one who had come out of their mouths, the demons that looked like frogs, to go and gather the kings from all over the globe? The dragon, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. They're gathering all the nations at that time, at the end of the tribulation period, just outside of Jerusalem, not to go against Israel, but to go against Jesus. Because Satan knows he's coming back. Satan knows that he's begun to reign at this time, and Satan is getting not only his angels, but every human he can gather to come to fight against Jesus to keep him from winning when he comes back. Oh, by the way, how's he gonna do? Not too good, not too good. But I want to show you something along this line that I've recently put together. And we've already seen in our study that at the midpoint of the tribulation, when the Antichrist reveals who he really is and steps in the wing of the temple and puts an end to the sacrifice, declares himself to be God, when this happens, remember that we've already seen that Israel ran out into the desert for a place that they're going to be protected for three and a half years. I've already given you a glimpse. We'll deal with it more when we get to the return of Jesus in Revelation 19. I believe the Bible teaches without question that they're going to be hiding in Basra. But for years, I thought that all of Israel that that lived was going to escape into the desert. I've come to realize there's actually still going to be Jews in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' return. Because I started to put some scriptures together. I want you to see, um, go to Matthew 24 real quick, verses 15 through 22, and remind you of what Jesus told the nation of Israel. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22. Again, what I just referenced, but I want you to see the words of Jesus. Jesus says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short." Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray many, if possible, sorry, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So look at what Jesus said. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, what were the Jews supposed to do? Get out of of Jerusalem. Get out of Judea. Run. And we already saw in Revelation that the the woman gave birth to the male child who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And that woman, which is Israel, ran off as Satan went after. He tried to kill the child, but he couldn't because it went up, carried up to heaven. Then he went after the woman, which is Israel, and she was protected out in the wilderness. And for years, I thought that Israel would all be hiding there, the ones that make it. I knew that there were going to be some Jews that were killed in Jerusalem because some prophecy I'm going to show you. But I've come to realize just recently that actually there's still going to be Jews in Jerusalem when Jesus comes back. There'll be some that are hiding in Basra, but there'll be a remnant that lives and they're going to be in Jerusalem. Let me show you what I mean. Go to uh, um, Zechariah chapter 14. You're in Matthew. Just back up a couple of books. Go to Zechariah chapter 14 and look at verses 1 through 3. <coughs> Says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Here again is describing that battle of Armageddon, if you will, when they gather against Jerusalem. All the nations are going to come to attack Israel. We saw from Psalm 2 that they're really not going after the Jews as much as they're going after Jesus himself. They're taking their stand against Jesus for his return. So how many are going to go out into the wilderness, into exile and be protected? And how many are going to stay in the city? Half and half. Yeah, well, that's a bad translation, unfortunately, because the word is not captivity. It's actually exile, meaning what we know from the whole of Scripture is going to be a time of protection. Captivity is not a good translation of that word in the, in, the, in the Hebrew, unfortunately. But actually, you don't have all the information yet to determine how many. Half is right, but that number is not as big as you think. Because back up to Zechariah chapter 12. Sorry, chapter Uh, 13, not chapter 12, chapter 13. And look at verses 8 and 9. Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9. It says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire, and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So we see, and we're going to come back to this whole section of Zechariah later on tonight. But in Zechariah 12, 13 and 14, we see a lot of prophecy about this battle, about this attack on Israel at the end of the tribulation period, about the return of Jesus Christ. We're going to come back and look at a lot more of this tonight in the time we have. But I want you to see that the prophecy said that when Israel is attacked at the end, Two thirds of the nation of Israel will be killed. Remember, we've already seen houses are going to be ransacked, women are going to be raped. Not everybody is going to make it. Two thirds are going to be killed. So when we see a half will go into exile and one half will stay in the city, it's a sixth of the original because it's a half of a third. Do you see what I'm saying? And actually, as you start seeing this, you'll see prophecy make a whole lot more sense now when you figure out how many people that will actually be. Because people have said, well, you Bible believers think that they're going to go hide in Petra. Well, if they go hide there, there's not enough room for Actually, if you let the Bible do its full speaking, you'll find it's not as big as number as we thought. So at that time, when this battle happens, two-thirds of Israel are going to be killed. One-third will be preserved. They're going to be going through a time of testing and purification of that one-third, half will stay in Jerusalem and half will go out into exile in the area where God's going to protect them. And you'll see that later on when we get to some of these prophecies, because you're going to see that when this attack comes, there will be Jews in Jerusalem at that time. And i got to be honest with you, I had never seen that until my preparation for this study, because I had always assumed that Israel is going to be out there in the desert. But the prophecy shows us not all of Israel will be, but God will protect that one half that stays in the city of Jerusalem. All right. Now, go with me to Isaiah 26 real quick. Look at verses 20 and 21. Isaiah 26, verses 20 and 21. God says to the nation of Israel, come, my people. Enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. What did he tell the nation of Israel to do? Go hide for a little while until the fury passes. When you put all of the prophecy together, you'll see this is the group that's going to be out in the area of of Edom being protected. We're going to get into that in a lot more detail when we get to Revelation 19 and the return of Jesus and all the things that go on with it. So go with me now back to Revelation chapter 16 and look again with me at some of the things that we need to see from chapter 16 verses 10 through 16. Now, the fifth bowl you see in verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and they didn't repent of their deeds. We're going to come back to the fifth bowl next week when we study chapters 17 and 18, because I'm going to show you that the kingdom of the beast is Babylon itself and the rest of the world that he controls because I'm going to show you from scripture and from all the prophecies. I'm actually going to give you a handout next week because there are so many scriptures that I want you to see. They're more than you have time to write down. I'm going to actually pass out a handout to you next week that shows you a bunch of scriptures from the Old Testament that talked about the future destruction of Babylon. And when you look at these, they haven't happened yet. And the the, the Bible says that Babylon will be destroyed. So when we get to chapter 17 and chapter 18, and it talks about the destruction of Babylon, folks, let me just tell you, it is Babylon. The headquarters for the Antichrist, after the church is gone, when the Antichrist sets up his one world kingdom, his headquarters will be in Babylon. It shouldn't surprise us, should it? But that's where it's going to be. And so when we see the fifth bowl here poured out on the kingdom of the beast and it went into darkness, it's not only Babylon, it's also his whole area that he's in control over. And if you're still struggling with me, let me give you a little glimpse here. We already read it, but um, well, we'll read it in just a second. Go look at um, verse 19 of chapter 16. We're going to get to there in a little bit tonight. The great city was split into three parts. This is Jerusalem, and we'll get to that tonight and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered who Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath in this final bowl being poured out not only the fifth bowl is God going to pour a bowl onto Babylon and his king and the antichrist kingdom to put them in the darkness but also at the seventh bowl when all this earthquake happens which we're going to talk about tonight God gives it extra special to Babylon all right now we will deal with Babylon next week. So come back next week and we're going to spend our whole time dealing with the destruction of Babylon, which is future. <clears throat> but now look at how that dragon, the Antichrist, and the false prophet have unclean spirits come out of their mouths to gather the kings of the whole world to come to the valley of Armageddon for, to gather for battle. But I want you to see that even though it's demons speaking through them, do not miss that even though Satan thinks he is doing this, It's Jesus who's actually in power, and it is he who has begun to reign. Remember? We we read this, and it sure looks like Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet are the ones who are having the demons come out of them as they somehow, through their speech, convinced all the nations and the kings to gather for battle against Jerusalem. I want you to see something the Bible said all along. We've already just seen it. He's already begun to reign, right? So who's actually gathering these nations to battle? Jesus is. Jesus says, God uses wicked people for his purposes, and then he punishes those wicked people for the wicked things they do. But it's Jesus who's gathering them. Satan thinks he is. The Antichrist thinks they are. The false prophet thinks they're gathering them. I want to show you from Scripture, it is Jesus who is actually doing this. Who's opening the seventh seal? Jesus. Who uh, Who has the seven bowls of God's wrath carried out of his own temple? God, Jesus. And God uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. So look at Joel chapter 3 with me. Go with Joel 3, verses 1 and 2. Joel chapter 3, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, who's going to gather all the nations? God says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. By the way, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, just another term for the Valley of Armageddon. All right. So who's gathering them? God is. Let me show you another place. Go to Joel chapter three and look at verses nine through 16. Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all of the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion, and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Anybody have any idea what battle this is that they're calling everybody to? This is the battle of Armageddon at the end, because that's when the sun and the moon go dark. See, in prior times, the sun became black and was darkened, and the moon turned red. But for the moon to be seen, the sun still has to exist. And we saw some stars falling from the sky during parts of the tribulation, but not all of them. At this point, everything's going to go dark, and you're going to see the bowls poured out on the the kingdom of the Antichrist, and it goes dark. You're going to see, here we see an earthquake Wait till you see the description of the earthquake in a, in a few verses later. But just keep in mind, it's God gathering all the nations to battle. And then we know that they're enraged and trying to come against Jesus. Go to Zechariah 14. I just read it to you, but I want to read it to you again now in this context. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For who's going to gather the nations to Jerusalem to battle? God is. And the city shall be taken and so on. We just read that. And then at the end of that section he says the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. Go to Zechariah chapter 12 and look at verses 1, 2, and 3. The oracle of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples." The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And on that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Again, here we see, God says, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. Yes, these demons came out of the mouth of the dragon, which is Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, to gather the kings to war. They're the ones who do it, but it's actually God who's orchestrating all of this. Because he's begun to reign. Zach, go ahead. I'll be honest with you. I, I, I looked into it. And, we, and the only thing I can find is people's speculation as to what the significance of the frogs are. And so I'm just going to stay away from it. Because if the scripture doesn't tell us, we don't know. Um, that's about all I can tell you. Good question. I asked that question myself. Dug into it. And everything I found was speculation. But good question. All right. Go to Revelation chapter... Uh, well, actually... Let me just say this, and then I'll tell you where we're going to go next. God, and we're going to deal with this when we get to chapter 19. God even puts the the hooks in the jaws of Gog and his army. If you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, you're going to see that God says, I'm going to put my hooks in the jaws of Gog and of the people with him. Who's the one that gathers Gog to fight against Jerusalem? God does. God does. And I'm going to show you, and for years I've heard it taught, that the Gog and Magog battle is going to happen prior to the tribulation period. And the reason why prophecy people have said that is that because at the end of that battle of the Gog and Magog, they collect the weapons of warfare that have just all been left because the army was defeated, and they collect them for seven years. And so prophecy people said since they're going to be collecting for seven years that battle has to happen prior to the tribulation period and they'll collect it during the tribulation period. Well, let me just tell you that's lazy exegesis first of all, just because it says seven doesn't mean that's what it means. And second of all, are people going to be gathering um, the weapons throughout the whole seven years of the tribulation? Uh, no, they're going to be under judgment themselves from God during that time. And I'm going to take the time when we get to Revelation 19, I'm going to show you as we dig into in detail Ezekiel 38 and 39, I'm going to show you that the Gog and Magog battle begins somewhere around the midpoint of the tribulation period, culminating at the end of the tribulation period. And I'm going to show you that the the bird feast that's listed in Ezekiel 38 and 39 parallels the bird feast in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes and defeats all his enemies there in the battle of Armageddon. They're word for word the same. And on top of that, Ezekiel 38 and 39 says that from the end of the battle of Gog and Magog, the nation of Israel worships the Lord God forevermore. If the battle of Gog and Magog is prior to the tribulation period, that's not true because they're going to sign a peace treaty with the false prophet. I mean, with the Antichrist, aren't they? So I'm going to show you. For years, I thought it was prior. But as I've dug into it and dug into it, I can't wait to show you Ezekiel 38 and 39 and the Battle of Armageddon tie together. They're all coming together. And we will get to that in Revelation 19. So we won't get into that tonight. Go back to Revelation chapter 16. I want you to see verses 17 through 21. Revelation 16, verses 17 through 21. It says the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake, the great city was split into three parts. This is Jerusalem, was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath, And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. And this last bowl, this is it. This is the end of God's pouring out of His wrath, and He's going to come back at the end of this. He's beginning to rain and pouring this out, but the Bible says that when this happens, the bowl's just simply poured into the air, and an earthquake happens on the earth, That is so great. Listen closely. The scripture doesn't lie. All the nations fall, the islands disappear, and every mountain on the globe is leveled. That's going to be an earthquake, folks. By the way, what did the people say earlier in Revelation chapter 6 when God began to send some of His wrath to get their attention? They said, mountains, hide us from him. God says, try it now. There's no mountains. They're gone. Now look closely, though. The great city, Jerusalem, at this earthquake is not destroyed. I'm going to show you from prophecy that actually when this earthquake happens, Jerusalem is improved. When the whole rest of the globe is destroyed because of this earthquake, Jerusalem is actually improved, setting the stage for the Millennial Kingdom and Jesus to come back. It says the great city was split into how many parts? Three parts. And as I'm going to show you from prophecy, you get you got the, city, the, the uh, city of Jerusalem. It's got a northern side, middle, if you will, and the southern side. The middle, where the, where the temple area is, is going to raise up. It's actually going to be raised up above every other area. Right now, it's actually not the highest point. And it's going to be raised up. And the part north of it is going to become flat. The part south of it is going to become flat. It's going to be an amazing thing. Go with me, to, and I'll show you what I mean. Go with me to uh, um, Zechariah 14 again. But look at verses, uh, f- verses 4 and following. Zechariah chapter 14. We already read verses 1, 2, and 3 earlier tonight a couple of times. But I want you to see verses 14. Uh, sorry, verses 4 through 11. Zechariah 14, verses 4 through 11. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half move southward. Do you see what I'm saying? You got The, 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 the Bible says it's going to be divided. The northern part of Israel is going to go north. The southern part is going to go south. And the center part's going to raise up, as you're going to see. All right. And I'll keep reading here uh, in verse five. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. There shall be, be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time there shall be light." On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, which is the Dead Sea, and half of them to the western sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. By the way, that's a big deal because over in that area, they would have times that the rivers would dry up a little bit because of the rainy seasons and non-rainy seasons. The Bible says when that happens, they're not going to have such a thing. And the rivers are going to continue to flow all year round. And because of that, We don't have time to get into those prophecies. The area of Israel is going to start to blossom and bud like you wouldn't believe because it's going to have water all year round. All right. And then it goes on here. On that day, living water shall flow from the Jerusalem half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon. That's north to south. South of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Do you see it? Now we'll deal more with the plague that he's going to strike the nations. And if you want to keep reading, you can, but it's just, it, that we'll deal with that when we get to chapter 19. Go to Psalm 48. Go to Psalm 48. I want you to begin to get excited about the fact that what we're looking at in Revelation has been in the Bible all along. Over and over and over have the prophecies been talking about this. But it isn't until we start putting it all together that maybe we start to say, you know what? I think this is really going to happen. In Isaiah 48, look at verses 1 through 8. Psalm. Did I say Isaiah? Yeah, sorry. Isaiah 48 is one of my favorite passages where God says, for my sake, I'm going to do this. But uh, Psalm 48 is one I want you to look at. Psalm 48, a song of Psalms and the songs of Korah. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Did you catch that? They're singing about Jerusalem and how it's going to be raised up. Beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great King. Within her citadels, God has made Himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them in their anguish as a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. And as we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord of hosts is in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. Here it talks about that battle. The kings all gathered. They were then in anguish and Jerusalem is elevated. Go to Psalm 125. Look at verses 1 and 2. Psalm 125, verses 1 and 2. It's a song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. Do you see it? What's He doing about the mountains all over the whole globe? Gone. But in Jerusalem... He's going to be protecting it during this earthquake. It's going to be an amazing thing. Go to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. Do you see it? And it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He, meaning God, shall judge between many peoples, and He shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn, learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. So again, all these things that the prophecies have been saying are going to happen and Revelation puts it all together for us. Let me give you one more. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you're in, in uh, Micah, just keep turning right just a little bit and you'll get there. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It's the prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigenath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman. And the Holy One from Mount Paran. By the way, does anybody have any idea where Mount Teman and Mount Paran are? They're in Edom in Basra, where the nation of Israel is going to be hiding, remember? That's where he's going to be coming from. I'll show you that more later on. You're going to see that in Isaiah 63, that he comes from Basra, stained in blood. All right? All right. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hand, and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were what? Scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. There's more description later on in this passage here, if you keep reading, of what's going to happen at that time. But I just figured, I think you get the idea now, don't you? All along, the prophets have been saying that there's going to be a time when Jesus comes back and sets up Jerusalem as the place where he's going to and reign from. It's going to be raised up. An earthquake is going to level all the nations. All the mountains are going to disappear. And Jerusalem will become elevated. A river is going to flow, as you're going to see in Ezekiel chapter 40, from the temple. And it's going to flow out from the east and it's go to the Dead Sea. And it's going to become deeper and deeper and deeper as it goes. And it's going to turn the Dead Sea fresh. It's just going to be an amazing, amazing time and we're going to come back with Him, and He's going to give us responsibilities all over the globe to rule and reign. I'm going to show you later on when we get to that section of chapter 19 that actually there's going to be a Jewish branch of government where Jesus is going to reign from Jerusalem. David, yes, King David is going to rule with Jesus in Jerusalem as his prince. And the, the 12 apostles, oh sorry, the apostles, are, are the, 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 the 12 disciples who became the apostles are going to rule with Jesus over the 12 tribes of Israel. There's going to be a Gentile branch of government all over the globe. And we Christians who have been faithful and will be rewarded such. Remember how Jesus said, you've been faithful with little. You're in charge of 10 cities. You've been faithful. You're in charge of so many cities. We're going to be given responsibilities all over this whole globe during the millennial kingdom. All that stuff we'll get into in the times to come folks I just want you to understand the Bible says these things must take place and they're going to and the stage is being set so as we close tonight we got to deal with Revelation 16 15 in Revelation eleven nineteen, 19 and Revelation 15 5 through 8 what I gave you a little glimpse of at the beginning look at Revelation 16 15 it says behold I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed." I don't know if anybody of you caught that. Didn't that kind of just seem out of place in the midst of all this? He's describing the bowls of wrath being poured out, and this bowl happened, and this bowl happened, and this bowl happened. Oh, and behold, I'm coming like a thief. Again, if you know your Bible, you would say, that makes sense. But if not, you might miss what's going on here. Can't wait to show you it. But don't also forget Revelation 11, verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within the temple. And then there were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, and earthquake and heavy hail. So why did God show them the ark of the covenant in the midst of this as he's beginning to reign? Revelation chapter 15, verses five through eight again. After this, I looked in the sanctuary, the tent of the witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels, the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels, seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So we're going to put these three together. Because this would be really kind of important for us and especially for the people we're supposed to be preaching to. See, folks, the Ark of the Covenant is a reminder of God's presence with who? With Israel. It reminded them of His presence, His atonement of the mercy seat, which was at the top of the Ark, you know, was the mercy seat where God would dwell, and His covenant with His people. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant, do we? No, because we're... Grafted in. The Ark of the Covenant was given to the nation of Israel to remind them of his presence. Because wherever it was, that's where he was. It was the atonement place where his mercy seat was. It was also a reminder of the covenant that he had made with them. And then when John writes that Jesus said in the context of the seventh trumpet, Behold, I come like a thief. And he tells them to stay awake. He's reminding the Jews of Jesus's teaching. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's stuff we can learn. There are things we can glean from Jesus' teaching to the nation of Israel. I don't want you to fall into the pattern of thinking, well, Jesus, since he was talking to the Jews, that doesn't really apply to us. No, there is a lot we can learn from it. But we need to also understand that when Jesus came to the earth, who did he come to? The Jews. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Matthew chapter 15. That's a That's exactly what it is. He's speaking. uh, Susan got it, which means that God's working because if Susan got it, anybody can get it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, Susan and I go back far enough to know that she knows I love her, but I can't leave it alone. But what she said was this. Is she reminding the Jews that I haven't forgotten you? Yes. Yes, he is refining them as silver and gold. But he's reminding them the Ark of the Covenant was seen. Behold, I come like a thief will make sense because I'm going to show you in a second why. But in Matthew chapter 15, look at verse 24. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Remember this? This is when a a, a Canaanite woman who has a a daughter who has a demon calls out to him and he ignores her. The disciples come and they say, send her away. She's driving us crazy. And And he says, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, listen closely. Jesus dealt with her and he blessed her and he healed the daughter. But he made a statement here that we need to keep in mind. It wasn't that he doesn't like Gentiles, but his role was he had been sent by the father to go preach to the nation of Israel. Doesn't Romans chapter one, verse 16 say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it's the gospel of salvation for who? The Jews first And then to the Gentile. We also know in Matthew chapter 10, look at verses 5 and 6. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. Jesus, the twelve, Jesus sent out instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do you see it? Why did Jesus send his disciples out to go preach the good news of the kingdom to only the Jews? That was his job description. When he came, he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Please don't miss it. God loves Gentiles. And a Gentile here and a Gentile there were saved. But as a whole, Jesus was sent to the Jews. That's why in John chapter 12, when... God begins to move his drawing from the Jews to the Gentiles. Before, it was an individual Gentile here and there that God was drawing. But all of a sudden, in John chapter 12, a group of Gentiles, a group of Greeks go to Philip and they say, We want to see Jesus. Philip gets Andrew, and the two of them go tell Jesus, There's a group of Greeks that want to see you. Jesus' response is interesting. He says, It's time for me to die. It's time for me to go to the cross. Why? Because he knew that he had been sent to the Jews. There would be a point where they rejected him and God would begin to draw the Gentiles and put Israel on hold. Remember, a hardening has occurred on Israel in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so he says, it's time for me to die because he recognized his father was starting to draw the Gentiles now. So with this in mind, I want you to remember that when Jesus was teaching in Matthew 24 When he was asked, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Who is he talking to? The ones he was sent to, he was teaching the Jews. Go with me to Matthew 24 now and listen to what Jesus says in verses 36 through 44. Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44. Again, dealing with his return. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware till the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. All right. Stop for a second. For years, we've had people teach us that that's the rapture, right? As it was in the days of Noah, who was taken? Who was left? The ones taken were the ones taken in judgment. The ones left were the righteous. Actually, at the second coming of Jesus, and you're going to see this, I'm going to lay it all out for you from the scriptures. We're going to see that there's going to be two harvests. At the return of Christ in Revelation 19, we're going to see us go back and see this descripted in other places in Revelation as well. There's going to be a gathering of the wicked. They're going to be taken to judgment. There's going to be a gathering of the righteous. gather his elect from the four globes, corners of the globe. They're going to be brought to Jerusalem. And there he's going to have his judging of the sheep and the goats. The ones who are righteous are going to stay to populate the millennial kingdom. The unrighteous will be sent off to hell. They're the goats. Folks, when Jesus talks about his return here, He's talking about his second coming. And as it was in the day of Noah, when the flood came, the ones taken were the ones taken in judgment. The ones left were the ones left because of their righteousness. Listen closely. And also in the Greek here, it is a taken for judgment. But keep reading. Look at verse 42. Therefore, does this sound familiar? Stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. People say, wait a minute, Jim, by the end of the tribulation, don't you think they'll be able to do the math and all this stuff? You're trying to interpret what their response will be because you have insight. you got the spirit of God within you teaching you. You understand the scriptures. They're spiritually discerned. Remember, at this time on the globe, a strong delusion will have been sent so that people believe a lie. How in the world will all the nations think they're going to gather to fight against Jesus They think they're going to win? Actually, at this time, people will be unaware of what's really going on. We know the Scriptures. They don't. Not even the Jews, most of them, know the Scriptures. He says, Stay awake, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus wasn't talking to the church. He was talking to who? The Jews. And what did he say to the Jews? Stay awake. The thief comes in the middle of the night and be ready. You got it. Yeah. You got it. And what does he say here? Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Folks, Jesus is reminding the Jews at this point. I already told you about this. Get ready. I'm coming. I'm coming. Paul had to remind the Thessalonian church that the thief in the night was something people in the night needed to fear. Let me wrap up in the time we have left here. I know what time it is. We've got two more minutes. In 1 Thessalonians, I want you to see what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Because people had been saying to the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord had already come. But that's not true. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, look at verses 1 through 11. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Sound familiar? While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon who? Them, as labor pains, come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape But you, there's a difference between the they's and the them and uses, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you're all children of the light and children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing." Back up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verses 9 and 10. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 9 and 10, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The message to the church, by the way, Paul was the apostle or the ambassador to the Gentiles. Paul's teaching about the end times is to the church. Jesus' teaching about the end times was to Israel. And so the behold, I come like a thief in the night wasn't written to the church. That's why Paul said, I don't even have to write to you guys about times and seasons or anything like that. That's for those people that are in the dark, those of the night. He's gonna come like a thief in the night. That's why they're to be watching and be ready. You don't have to worry about that because he's already said that we won't be going through the wrath that is to come. Let me give you one last illustration of that. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verses five and six, keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You know that one, right? God's already promised he'll never leave you, right? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says that the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, won't be revealed until who's taken out of the way. The restrainer. Let me tell you, who's the restrainer? It's the Holy Spirit. And his action, listen, he's not going to be totally removed from the earth, because if he was totally removed from the earth, that's not possible. He's God. He's everywhere. But his action... Of, through the church was the salt and the light. Listen closely. If God's going to remove he who restrains, and he said that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, but he's going to remove him, who has to go with him? Yes, we have to go with him. That's an awesome promise, folks. The problem is most of us grew up in churches that just mixed up the teaching of Jesus between the Jews and the the church. And most of the stuff that Jesus said in Matthew 24, people tried to read the church into it, tried to read the rapture into all those things. I say to you tonight, let the scriptures speak for themselves. The church will be gone. All this stuff that's going to happen from chapter four on is going to be happening to the nation of Israel and the surrounding nations. It's a time of purification. It's a time of God's judgment and his wrath. We've been spared the wrath to come. We're going to go with him when he takes the restrainer away. The man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. And the thief in the night is going to come to those who are in the night. where of the day. So we don't have to worry about it. Is it getting close? Sure is. And when this stuff begins on the earth, that's why the scripture says, behold, I come quickly. Once it begins, it's going to be happening fast. Come back next week. And we'll break down Babylon. Can't wait to show it to you. See you then.